Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. we find out that the going really is getting tougher and that, fortunately, the tougher are there to get going. In the space of three weeks, we had the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change warn that conditions are more dire than predicted. A dire warning this morning from climate experts. A UN panel says governments around the world must take rapid action to curb rising temperatures or else millions around the world face future disaster. Well, they're basically saying that the very livability of our planet is at stake, not in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but right now. Then, against all odds, the federal government in Washington, D.C. released a 1,600-page report detailing the impacts of climate change on the nation. Brand new report on climate change released by the Trump administration on a busy Black Friday. The 1,600-page report painting a dire picture if nothing is done. The assessment from 13 federal agencies asking the administration to take urgent action against dire threats and curb climate change to avoid substantial damages to the U.S. economy, environment, and human health. Among the report's predictions and worst-case scenarios, America's GDP dropping by 10% by the end of the century, hundreds of billions of dollars lost. For the Southeast, stronger hurricanes and more frequent flooding. The Midwest, agricultural catastrophe, extreme heat destroying crops. And in the West, increased fire danger. The president recently touring a California fire zone. And if that weren't enough, this week we reach a new milestone for greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. The last time we had 400 parts per million of CO2 in our air was 3.6 million years ago. As politicians and scientists continue the negotiations at the UN Climate Change Conference in Poland, a new study has concluded that global carbon dioxide emissions will reach a record high this year. Research by the Global Carbon Project Group says the main factor is the burning of coal in China, but emissions from cars, trucks and airplanes are also on the rise. Suffice it to say, the going is getting tougher. As a result, we may need to start implementing some large-scale solutions that a few years ago I would have thought were best left in the realm of science fiction, namely geoengineering. Geoengineering is defined as the deliberate large-scale manipulation of an environmental process that affects the Earth's climate in an attempt to counteract the effects of climate change. These fall into two categories. The first is called carbon geoengineering, which includes everything from adding nutrients to the ocean to draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to engaging in global-scale tree planting efforts. The second group is called solar geoengineering and includes increasing the reflectiveness of clouds or the land surface so that more of the sun's heat is reflected back into space, or even launching space reflectors to block a small portion of sunlight before it reaches Earth. I traveled to Stanford University to meet ICE 911, a cutting-edge solar geoengineering project that's focused on the Arctic. I start by meeting up with Podship Earth collaborator Eden Stiffman, who is with the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Okay, so Eden, we're here at Stanford. Pretty cool. I got completely lost. It totally is. And I'm glad you didn't get hit by a bike on the way over because that happens to me almost daily. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, so this is kind of a cool partnership with Stanford Social Innovation Review. That's you. Yes, that's me. I'm an associate editor there. And we're a magazine based on campus, but our readers and the people who write for us are all over the world. And we like to think of them as leaders of social change. They work at all kinds of organizations um, on all kinds of issues. So one of the cool things about having Stanford so close by is you got all these kind of brainiac people. Do you kind of meet all these people all the time? Absolutely. Um, We interact with them on campus, and then we're always in touch with them about articles that they want to write for our audience. I mean, I'm always like slightly intimidated by academia. It can be very humbling talking to some of these people. Like literally in the way in, they had um, the achievement board. And, you know, normally it's like the McDonald's employee of the month. Here it had the only people on the achievement board were the people who had won Nobel Mm -hmm. laureates. (laughs) So what other cool stuff are you doing at the Innovation Review? Like what What things excite you at the moment, Eden? So I get to edit a section of the magazine called What's Next. And for that section, we look at um, new and innovative solutions to different social problems. Today, Eden and I meet up with Leslie Field and Dr. Stephen Zornetzer. Leslie's been working to save polar ice since 2006. She's an inventor with 54 U.S. patents, who's worked at Hewlett-Packard Labs. Leslie earned her BS and her MS in chemical engineering from MIT and her PhD in electrical engineering from UC Berkeley. She's now a lecturer at Stanford University and runs ICE 911 Research. ICE 911 is a Silicon Valley moonshot aiming to mitigate climate change by restoring ice in the Arctic. Steve Zornetzer formerly served as the associate director of NASA Ames and was the director of research. Before joining NASA in 1997, Steve headed the Life Sciences Directorate for the Office of Naval Research. Steve is a board member of Leslie's organization, ICE 911. I start by asking Leslie, just how bad are things right now in the Arctic? Arctic ice and snow has been disappearing at an alarming rate over the last few decades. And we're at a point where 75 to 80% of Arctic ice volume has disappeared since 1979. And that's a big deal because for planet Earth, uh, bright reflective ice in the Arctic has been like having that area of the Earth wearing a bright white T-shirt in the hot summer sun, you know, the 24-hour-a-day summer sun, and we don't have that anymore. And that means that the absence of that bright reflective ice is leading to a lot of global temperature rise. Uh, At this point, if you're counting all the ice and snow that have disappeared in the Arctic, we're contributing something like half of global temperature rise. Uh, The the estimates go from a quarter to a half of all global temperature rises coming from this one effect. So just to be clear, are you talking about just sea ice in the Arctic or are you also concerned about what happens in the winter as well? Well, yeah, they both play together. So in the summer when the ice is gone, we're absorbing far more energy from that 24-hour-a-day sunlight. In the winter, you don't have sunlight up there, so that part isn't such a big deal. In the winter, we're still fortunate enough to be regrowing ice every winter, so this is good. But what we're regrowing, because so much multi-year ice is gone, we're regrowing first-year ice. And the problem there is, because that's all we can, right? First-year ice is what grows in the first year. And what that means is that when the sun comes back, when the sun is shining again, that ice is both more 
perfect, so it has fewer spots to reflect incoming sunlight, but it's also thinner. And so it disappears more quickly. What's the name for what's going on up in the Arctic? It's all called the ice albedo feedback effect. But what it means is that what you regrow even is going to disappear more quickly than what used to be there. What, what does albedo mean? Uh, brightness, basically. And so we've lost the bright reflective ice. You can see over the last several decades um, the age of sea ice as reported by satellite imagery. You can see that you regrow first your ice every winter over much of the Arctic, but that's relentless decline of any, any multi-year ice over time. That would seem like a huge deal. That's a big deal for the planet. At this point, this effect... The heating that we're getting from the ice that isn't there, from the multi-year ice that isn't there, is giving us, uh, you know, so much of global temperature rise. And the estimates we're we're hearing are that all of the forcings we have on climate from CO2, you know, having too much CO2 in the atmosphere, about half again as much is from sea ice. That is, of all the problems we have from CO2, add another 50% to that is from sea ice. This is the largest safely addressable lever on climate change there is. What started out as a as an impact from heating, from climate change, has now become a lever for further climate change effects. So when we think of sea ice, does that include Greenland and Antarctica, or is it just the Arctic? Like, t- give us a global sense of right. what sea ice means. So in the Arctic, most of the ice that we're talking about has been sea-based ice. And that means that when that melts, what's left is open ocean. On Greenland, that's land-based ice. When that melts, that not only eventually will expose, if it goes all the way down to rock, will expose darker rock, but it also contributes more to sea level rise. When you're melting an ice cube in a glass of water, you're not raising your water level by anything except maybe that you've heated it some, so you've got thermal expansion. So that's not really a big sea level push. But from Greenland... You're melting ice that's now running into the ocean as water. Now you've got sea level rise. Antarctica, similar issues. There is some sea ice that surrounds Antarctica, but the bulk of it is land-based ice. You get more melt in Greenland and Antarctica, the less summer sea ice you have in the Arctic. What we have come to realize there is that if what's causing Greenland to melt is the warmer temperatures of the air over the Greenland ice that's happening because we've melted the nearby sea ice. So that rebuilding nearby sea ice could be a really good lever on rebuilding Greenland ice too, at least at least stopping the loss so much. And we had this wonderful mentor who kept telling us, you know, if not me, who? If not now, when? And I must say that that gets in your heart after a while. What I am is a career engineer, PhD engineer, been through a couple fields of engineering, and I'm an inventor. And this was a problem that, you know, the choices were to become enormously depressed and stay depressed or to say, no, the really good stories you read are about where people say, I don't care if it's hard. Let's just see if we can do something. That's... That's a much more exciting way to live. There are a lot of different ways you could go about addressing climate change. Can you kind of walk us through how you landed on this project? It was just clear at that point in 2006, the ice albedo feedback effect was already, so the disappearing ice that was already gone was already accounting for about a fifth of global temperature rise. I said, well, you know, I'm one of billions of people and, you know, I have the luxury of a great education and, you know, I like to invent stuff. It's like, well... You know, that's a single thing 
that maybe one person quietly thinking about it and starting something could get somewhere on. That looks like a key effect. So that's that's what got me interested. I've always loved the snow, but <laughs> I can't say I'd ever been to the Arctic or thought I'd get there. But this idea that you're working on now, um, were there other ways that you thought you could do something about um, polar ice melt before you landed on this particular Oh, I've tried Project. a whole bunch of so so the question I asked myself that made it something I could address, got it into the wheelhouse of things I know about, was what if the disappearance of this reflective ice, this highly reflective ice could be thought of as a materials problem. And that leads then to some really, you know, assiduous research on what's out there, what could work, and then trying things out, you know, and they they were a perhaps embarrassing array of, of things to try out, daisies, hay, you know, whatever, and floating buckets on our deck to just see what keeps things cooler. So you really just start, what would be harmless, what could work? And I, I went through a large number of options and before I, I started narrowing in on ones that looked really nicely workable. I also got permission to work on a lake up in the Sierras, permission from the water district up there to test various things. And that you know, that really starts to inform what you're doing. Highly educational. So how long did it take before between getting from daisies to straw to to where are you now? Like so twelve years, that's that's it's a long journey. It's a long journey, takes a lot of persistence. <laughs> At times I've said many times I've said I'm just too stupid to quit, but you know, we just keep slogging on. Yeah. You know. And uh we've been up in the Arctic for three seasons now. And that's been really great to be testing up there. It's still, let's be clear, lake ice that we're testing on. Tell us a little bit about geoengineering in general, because you you read about these technical fixes. um, And I think as a society, kind of, we have a proclivity towards, let's just have it fixed by someone else. And, you know, whether it's putting iron filings in the ocean or you know, seeding clouds or you hear about people talking about things as crazy as putting aerosols into the atmosphere to reduce the amount of sunlight coming in, all these things. Like when I when I hear about them generally, I'm like, wow, Leslie, these these are crazy. But yours yours kind of has emerged as slightly less crazy than the average crazy geoengineering. When I wanted to develop a solution, I took a class from Steve Schneider One of the things that he said, which really stuck with me, was that you want to make sure if you're trying to fix something that you're not making it worse, you know, that what if you're wrong? That has stuck with me. First, do no harm. It is the Hippocratic Oath. It's first, do no harm is really what I'm – because what I'm trying to do is make this better for my kids. And I've also noticed how it's so simple to do something and think this is going to be completely good and there's nothing that could possibly go wrong. That's not the way the history of humanity has gone, right? (laughs) There's always some unintended consequence. So I wanted things to be localized, reversible, you know, have have a backup plan, you know, be able to pivot quickly if you find that you have some problem and be able to undo or at least prevent propagating more harm. So if you're changing the chemistry of the atmosphere, for instance, is that really a good idea? Um... You know, maybe something could go wrong. So I wanted to do a much more I, – I think of this as a more humble and mom-like way to approach things, by the way. I just try – why don't we just reboot things in as gentle a way as we can? We put 
as small an amount as we can of as natural a material as we can that we've evolved with. Hence, we're, we're working with silica, which is in basically everything. And how um, did you come up with sand, Leslie? How, how was that? Like of all these tests that you did, how did you finally arrive at sand? And, and what, what particular facets does the sand that you use have? One of the things I wanted is that um, I wanted it not to be something that would pick up oil-based pollutants, which there are plenty of in the ocean. And I didn't want plastic. So then it's like, what's the opposite of plastic? What's hydrophilic? It's like, oh, glass. I mean, one of the first ridiculous ideas I had, why don't we paint all these plastic Calistoga bottles white, raft them together and ship them up to the Arctic. It'll be a cottage industry. What could possibly go wrong, right? And so if you've started from bottom, of course, so much can go wrong, right? I mean, it's just a terrible idea. Not to mention it, it's, it acts like your pool cover. It's, it's basically preventing evaporative cooling. Your water will get warmer. Tell me how that's going to help prevent snow and ice melt. Not, not very well. So if you want the anti-plastic, you start thinking, Bottles, glass, I think it's probably the path I went there. Um, but at any rate, glass is the anti-plastic, really. It's far more sustainable in so many ways. And then you start searching what kind of glass, you know, those Japanese fishing floats I have in a very early presentation of mine. They're, they're pretty. They're, it's like, that would be great, but I want a lot smaller. And then you just start searching, searching, searching. And what did you end up with? Where are you now? What's, what's the latest iteration oh. Here's, here's a kind. There are many manufacturers that make these things called hollow glass microspheres. And what's nice about these guys is they are wettable. When the wind blows, once they've hit the water, the ice, the snow, they want to stay there. And what's nice about that is that if you're on melt ponds and such, or if you're going through freeze-thaw cycles like we've had for years when we were working on a small pond in Minnesota, a homeowner pond there. Um, as you go through freeze-thaw cycles, they keep going to the top of the water column or the ice column. And then it's so things freeze. So they actually have air in them, they, little bubbles? They've got gas in there, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can I see one? Yeah. Um, While you, you keep talking out. You want to open it yeah. um, gently because these do not have water on them, so they are dusty. But we choose a size range that's large enough it's not going to cause oh my silicosis. God, teeny. It's not, yeah, they are. They are they are less than your hair's width, and what we're talking about doing is using it's about like five dust. layers. Yeah, looks like powdered sugar. Does yep. did you try some? Eden? Not yet. <laughs> I will tell you that silica is what my vitamins are bound with. If if I look at my vitamin bottle, you know, and silica as a binder, and I think that's rather reassuring. Um, we've had ecotoxicological testing done on these. They are not harmful to the representative species of fish and birds that we've had them tested on. So how would you apply this? Like it's so dust-like. I mean, here, I mean, it's really, really, really dusty, teeny. So what we've done on lake ice is we've put them in an agricultural drop spreader that was altered to be able to handle these materials and get them close to the ice. That thing was behind a snowmobile. Now, that's pretty impractical for large areas, but it's good for small field testing. Um, what we think we would like to do in the ocean is get a very large ship with a big air blower on it and have it blow out, you know, in, with the prevailing wind, right, in the direction we want over ice in the ocean and get it there at the right season. We don't want to carpet the Arctic. What we really want to do is have this over small leverage, key leverage areas. It would prevent the ice from flowing out at, by, by having that blockage there. It would be like a bottle stopper 
Well, there are people who who think about, you know, making actual walls and things. And that seems, again, pretty invasive and very costly. And I don't think you want to make it like a cork. I mean, a cork is such a good example because you don't want it to suddenly pop out. A lot would change, all right? Just want to make it harder for stuff to flow through. Think of it as a flow restrictor. Think of it like if you're driving on the freeway and you're in a five-lane freeway and suddenly it's one. You haven't stopped the flow, but you've slowed it. And that seems to be making a really big difference. So you've got this great idea. You've got something which seems fairly benign. Like what are what are the obstacles that you're hitting mm. at, in terms of the challenge of making this happen, right. scaling it? Right. I started out actually not saying much about this at all while I was doing my homework because of this whole moral hazard thing. You don't want to say, I've got the solution, so nobody has to change a thing. But over the last few years, we've been getting the word out more, and that is growing. But, you know, we we have to find more of the right people to help us get this scaled up. The UN or governments really need to be involved for the funding and for the permissions. You know, it's a worldwide good. You prevent with a few billion dollars, trillions of dollars worth of damage and misery worldwide. But it's difficult to make that direct link on the funding. How much would this cost to do at the scale that you think is necessary? So we're looking at areas of something like 25,000 to 100,000 square kilometers. And that's something like one to maybe as much as $4 billion per year to do that, depending how big an area is required. We're having that kind of damage, a billion dollars worth of damage from just cleaning up debris from big wildfires, you know, from one wildfire. And so the scale here is not outrageous to be asking to invest in preventing these simultaneous harms all over the world. And what about governance, Steve? What governance issues are we finding? Well, you know, as, as you well know, Jared, bureaucracies can be um, very lethargic uh, when it comes to dramatic change. Um, so there's, it's a con- continuous uphill battle dealing with large bureaucracies, often that have different interests. So uh, think of the United Nations and uh, the different vested interests that are required to come together on a topic like this. So, for example, some countries, let's say Russia, um, may have an interest in in seeing the Arctic more ice-free rather than less ice-free. Would a country like that be supportive of an issue like this? And would they even, if it came to a Security Council vote, would it even uh, sustain a, you know, would they put put in their veto to prevent this from happening? So, so, Steve, so Steve, just on that, what would Russia gain from having less sea ice in the summer? Well, there's, there's uh, both economic issues as well as military issues that um, people have discussed. Um, there apparently is quite a bit of oil up there, and I think the Russians would love to be able to drill more for more oil in the Arctic, which would just exacerbate the the existing problems that we have. That's just exactly the wrong thing to do. But nonetheless, if it's if they're taking a short-term economic benefit view of the world, um, you, can, you can see the motivation for that. And very few countries are, at this point in time are taking the long-term view. They come out with wonderful pronouncements, but how many countries have actually delivered on what they've promised to do? So this is a, a, a difficult set of problems to navigate going forward. And unfortunately, uh, given the nature of our species, I'm afraid uh, until things get very bad, palpably bad, uh, around the world, people are not going to take action. It's time to speak out now and get this implemented as quickly as we can because predictions are 
the ice in the Arctic could all be gone by 2030, plus or minus 10 years. That's the consensus of the best experts I know. And that 2030 minus 10 years is, oh, wait, that's 2020. And after that, there are some really much larger risks that start surfacing quickly. So it's something that needs to be done quickly, but it doesn't solve all the rest of it. If we do this, if we implement ICE 911 solution at scale, even immediately, it, it won't fix the problem long term because we've still got all that CO2 forcing. We've still got all these other risks. There's going to be a time when you can't refreeze it all up there because it will have gotten so hot, right? And so we're not going to fix a long-term problem like that. So it became clear that, A, it's high time to get this out there, and B, hopefully nobody misses that really important point that even if you're doing this and making things much more habitable in the meantime and preventing some enormous harms, you've still got to do all that other hard work. We've got to change our fuel mix. We've got to get CO2 out of the atmosphere. I mean, these things just have to happen or we're cooked. Tell us a little bit about the climate modeling because when you see climate models, it's always a lot hotter, quicker in the Arctic. Um, And tell us just a little bit about why that is. So that's called the Arctic amplification. Things heat up there two to three to six times faster than anywhere else in the world. It might be that this feedback loop is a large part of it, right, the ice albedo feedback effect. We've also shifted the jet stream, and that's a big effect that is affecting the the whole world as far as severity of storms, droughts, wildfires, you know, things that are happening differently than they used to. And to my not climate modeler's mind, um, what this is is it's a temperature differential between we used to have a a heat sink in the Arctic. We had a reliably cold spot. The rest of the world was warmer or, you know, at least down through the equator, warmer. Okay, great. That's pretty stable. I've heard stated by climate scientists years ago, and it's really stuck, that over the entire course of human civilization, we've had an exceptionally stable jet stream pattern. You know, things stayed this way. What we have now is we don't have that that stability. So there isn't much temperature differential or not as much between the North Pole and the equator for instance. Okay. Tell us a little bit about next steps. What's the coalition of the willing to make it happen? We've had indications that um, environmental groups have gotten more interested in this. You know, originally, or at least a decade ago, basically you'd be hearing a lot of, we really don't want to interfere with any. I mean, people mess things up. So why would we want to have another intervention? And they seem to be more and more speaking out of, hey, we got to do something. So I think we're having the potential for some alignment of, of efforts in those kinds of directions. I also think the the publication of peer-reviewed papers, which Leslie and her team have been doing, um, is an indication that the broader um, scientific community is, is accepting uh, the results and uh, they believe that this is valid uh, research and the results are important and valid and therefore these papers are being published. And I think the, the, the broader scientific community is being exposed to this now and accepting it. That's such a good point. You know, we're getting invitations to submit further journal papers and we've got a fairly big role at the American Geophysical Union annual fall meeting. And so that's a really key indicator. One of the things we're looking at now is the wine industry. If climate change continues to accelerate and produce 
significant fluctuations from year to year in the stability of the climate, it becomes difficult for grape growers, for example, to um, to grow high-quality grapes. Uh, and if, if, in fact, the industry has to move north to more northern latitudes and or change all the varietals that they currently plant in California, this is an enormous expense. And we'll ta- it takes decades if they could avoid that kind of expense and those extreme measures. Um, it's worth an investment in something like ICE 911 as a strategic partner to slow down that progression of climate change and thereby sustain their economic well, uh, self-interest. Tell us about what you're finding on the tests that you've currently done and then tell us about kind of what it would take to do a larger test on sea ice in the Arctic. So uh, what we find is that we do delay the melt by putting out, you know, a few layers of these hollow glass spheres. And we have um, – it's interesting in a lake because you have a lot of variability. You have inflows and outflows of water as soon as a melt starts. It's, it's interesting. Best we can tell, it's, it's at least the 20 percent delay of ice melt that we see in the laboratory. So at least 20 percent delay in melt. And that is enough – you know, that according to the climate modeling and according to, you know, just what we're seeing should be able to restore ice over time. So that's nice. What would it take? Um, we're looking for 5 to $10 million a year over the next two or three years to get the sea ice tests out there deployed, get the permits in place so we can do that. Who would even permit that? Yeah, that's such an interesting question, right? So if we're in um, U.S. uh, waters, we need to go through the EPA, and we've got an application in, a very thorough application in. From the level of questions that we got, we found that people there, the people who reviewed our permit application really care. Oh, good. And they had really great expertise in it. And so it it was, I mean, it's painful to turn a 20-page application into a 160-plus page application, yes, but what they were asking were the right things to ask. You know, what other to countries these, are you talking to? Well, the ones that we want to get the right connections to are Norway, Denmark. We even found Iceland on their glaciers might be interesting to work. Um, so the, those kinds, right? We've talked with Canada a fair amount as well. So, Leslie, if you get the necessary permissions, what will be the logistics of your deployment in the Arctic? We're talking about 25,000 to 100,000 square kilometers of material at about 350 micron thickness of a very low density. The density of this stuff is about 0.1 gram per cc. So it could be backed out, but I don't have it. Right, no, and about, no. about on the low end there, the 25,000 square kilometers, that's about $300 million worth of material, we think. And we're talking about covering something like half a percent of the area of the Arctic for a full-scale deployment, what we would do to start. So to us, full-scale is rather teeny compared to the Arctic. But for a start, I'd love to see us go out at 1% of that, you know, because you really want to test and make sure you've got your procedures right and that you're causing no harm anywhere else. And what does it say about the kind of the state of where we are as a planet that we need to engineer our way out of problems that we created. I mean, We've done accidental geoengineering of our planet. Um, and, and some of that has definitely been in the interest of humanity, you know, farming. I mean, that's so you can feed your people, right? That's a kind of geoengineering. So it depends you know, how you're going to do it. But people, it's so hard to see the long-term consequences of your actions. So what, what do you think five, ten years from now, Leslie, will see with ICE 911? What on the current trajectory, like what do you hope 
we'll, we'll have in place. Get moms involved. This mama bear refuses to quit. Five to ten years from now, we're a determined lot here. Um, what we, what I expect to see is to be out on sea ice, to be getting to a scale where we can make a difference out there, where where it'll be big enough that NASA's satellites, whoever wants to observe, is going to be able to see, wow, where are they treated? We have more ice. We're rebuilding it. Where after a while, I don't know how many years that is, we actually start to restabilize the weather patterns. Sand and sea, sea and sand. Before I leave the Stanford campus, I say goodbye to Eden Stiffman from the Stanford Social Innovation Review. So Eden, that was pretty cool. I mean, I don't know. I was a little bit blown away by by the magnitude of what they were suggesting. It seems kind of audacious. It seems audacious, but also the way they laid it out seems very doable and very approachable. I mean, it does. I don't know. I When she opened the little canister of the silicon, I mean, I thought it would be visible to the human eye. And it's like dust. I mean, it's just dust. And they want to apply. It just seems kind of bizarre that this application of dust could save the planet. It absolutely does. And I loved hearing about how she experimented with so many other things before landing on this material that's really ubiquitous. And we just don't notice it. Yeah. And I also like kind of her approach just being a mom. Yeah, absolutely. She was so transparent about how she wanted to do something for her children. I thought it was interesting the way she addressed the moral hazard question, because I feel like when people talk about geoengineering, um, people are often critical because they think it's going to make us complacent. And if we find some big, shiny solution, then people are going to feel that they need to change their behavior. But she made it very clear that when they're out talking about um, this solution, that they're also saying that this is only a tiny fix and that we all have to contribute if things are going to change. I agree. I mean, I was very reticent going in, just thinking, I don't know, They always. it seems like we screwed up the planet so much that to re-engineer it and unscrew up the planet doesn't seem like something we're going to be able to do. But she kind of convinced me that we should look at this. It's worth looking at. I mean, it seems like we're at such a dire level um, in terms of where the planet is that this seems like a solution that whose time has come. I think so. And I'm excited to see where it goes in the next few years. And you're going to write an article for it for your journal? Absolutely. So we can read that as well. We we'll, can. We'll post it on our website. <laughs> Great. Cool. Thank you for doing this collaboration and inviting me down to Stanford. It was fun. Thanks to Leslie Field, Steve Zornetzer, and Eden Stiffman for blinding me with science. Given the severity of the impacts of climate change today, it really is time to seriously consider and move forward with proposals that help reduce climate impacts while following the guidelines that Leslie outlined. The materials must be benign, the process must be reversible, it should be started small, and the results must be demonstrated and based on peer-reviewed science. Next week, I meet with Kim Chambers, who has swum from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, from New Zealand's North to South Island, from the Hawaiian island of Oahu to Molokai, from Catalina Island to Los Angeles, from Honshu to Hokkaido in northern Japan, from Gibraltar to Morocco, and from Dover to France in the English Channel. These marathon swims are known as the Ocean Seven. But Kim decided that wasn't enough. 
Maybe because Ocean's 8 was about to be released, she took on the toughest swim of all, from San Francisco to the Farallon Islands. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Speed, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn. And from me, Jared Blumenfeld, have a great week.